The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. For this week's episode and next week's, we will be in Ireland. Next week, I will continue with the Great Myth series with more on the Celtic myths. But this week, we will have a reading of James Joyce's short story, Araby. That will be in the second half of tonight's episode. And you can check the post description for when that part begins. But for right now... We will get back to our friend Seamus Heaney, and from that wonderful book by Dennis O'Driscoll called Stepping Stones, Interviews with Seamus Heaney. And I'll just be reading from a chapter from that book here, where Heaney just talks about writing poetry, and it seems that what he has to say, what his own process is, is something, as always, even if we don't try to emulate it or copy it, it is still something that we can learn from. And Dennis O'Driscoll begins this chapter, this is chapter 15 from the book, this way. He says, Some years ago you told an English journalist, My notion was always that, if the poems were good, they would force their way through. Is this still your experience? And Seamus Heaney says this, Eagerness, excitement, a sense of change came over me when I began to write poetry in earnest in 1962. So I've always associated the moment of writing with a moment of lift, of joy, of unexpected reward. For better or worse, I arrived at the notion that labor wouldn't help. From Catholicism, I acquired the notion of grace, and I do believe that, unless there is a certain unforeseen energy to begin with, you can't proceed. I always believed that whatever had to be written would somehow get itself written. That was in the early days, when there was plenty of charge in the battery. But I still can't get away from that. I don't know how to write a poem unless there's something to write a poem with. You can't get started without a first line that goes musically, by which I don't mean mel melodiously, just that it needs phonetic purchase or rhythmical promise. And Dennis O'Driscoll says, Over the years you have often quoted John Keats' observation, which says, If poetry comes not as naturally as leaves to a tree, it better not come at all. And that reminds me of something I saw very, when I was still in high school, a remark by Robert Frost that said of a poet or of writing poetry, 
it is either one word or nothing. There really is no word choice. And uh, Dennis O'Driscoll says, is that just a young poet's perspective? Or in the case of Frost, is that just Robert Frost um, <laughs> being ridiculous in the ways that he sometimes can be, making it seem uh, easier or more uh, mysterious than it really is? And Heaney says this of Keats' line, if poetry comes not as naturally as leaves to a tree, it better not come at all. Heaney says, well, it doesn't mean, and it didn't mean for Keats, that the actual labor of composition or the working on the poem is an involuntary natural function like sneezing. You have to work. And that's interesting. He says, um, in the answer above, he says, where is it? Uh, for better or worse, I arrived at the notion that labor wouldn't help. But then in the very next answer, he says, you have to work. There's something going on here that, that I don't think O'Driscoll or maybe even Heaney saw a reason to pursue because perhaps there isn't an answer. Um, where Where is the line that Heaney draws between uh, having the inspiration and finding it and finding a way to write a poem and then working at it. What is the difference between that and suddenly realizing that having the inspiration, finding the poem and writing it and giving up? What is what is the line there? And he doesn't seem to have an answer for that. Maybe there isn't one. He says, you have to work. One of the best books I discovered early on, just when I'd begun to write, was John Stallworthy's Between the Lines about W.B. Yeats's manuscripts. A poem like Cool Park, 1929, 32 lines long, a middle-range Yeats poem, a cruising altitude poem where he's not breaking any sound barriers. Even this takes 38 pages of drafts, and yet he had only a few of the lines to begin with. If you have a stanza form, whatever the stanza form is, whether it's a sonnet or couplets or quatrains or whatever, you can work at that and work with it, because the stanza form immediately calls up all other stanzas in the language. To some extent, you're playing variations or singing in chorus. The quick free verse poem sometimes happens, but, oddly enough, my experience is that the poem comes more quickly if there is a form, and I've heard that as well, that it is almost easier to write the poem that uh, adheres to some sort of strict rule because you have the skeleton laid out for you. It's much harder to write a good free verse poem. I've heard it said both ways. Dennis O'Driscoll says, is there a poetry time of day and a prose time of day in order to write. And Heaney says, well, it used to be that whatever I did, I wrote at night. There wa that was in my 20s, 30s, and 40s, partly because I was teaching and busy all day and living a full life with the thrilling Heaney household. The house, you see, quietened later at night. Now that the house is quiet all day, I tend to work in the mornings if poems are coming. But I don't have a time of day for poems 
and a time of day for essays. In fact, my experience is that prose usually equals duty, last-minute overdue deadline stuff, or a panic lecture to be written. Some of the poems I like best were written in the laybys of a lecture I was preparing. You forget yourself when you get into a hurry like that. And I like Heaney's answer here that it is evening time, uh, because I just read an interview with Toni Morrison where she says uh, it has to be the morning time for her. That is when uh, her brain and her awareness and everything else is still going. That is the time to write, not in the evening. And O'Driscoll says, I remember Ann Yates, Yates's uh, daughter, saying that her father mumbled to himself when he started to write. Would the Heaney household know that a poem was coming on with these kinds of clues? Heaney says, not so much in the house, because I would withdraw a bit in order to be on my own. One of the best times for me for incubating and counting out the beats of a poem is on long drives. My wife Marie always knows because she sees my fingers on the steering wheel beating out the thing, and my wife has said the same thing. She can tell what I'm doing if she sees me tapping along and counting syllables. And sometimes I'm not doing a poem, sometimes I'm just just doing something with my fingers, but very often she knows when I am counting the syllables. And Heaney says, many, many poems were conceived of and started out in that shut-eyed manner. Well, not literally shut-eyed, because he's driving. As well as car journeys, long airplane journeys, and seclusions in hotel rooms are good. Escapes like that, displacements from your normal life, are useful for making lists and for allowing images to come up. And Dennis O'Driscoll says, do you ever feel burdened by the sheer amount of work you know that it will require to do justice to a particular inspiration in a poem? And Heaney says, one of the difficulties is to know whether a little quick flash of lyric is sufficient. You have the invitation and the inspiration, for want of a better word. But the question that I can never answer is this, and this is Heaney in his near the end of his life, still saying the question he can't answer is this one. To what extent the will should do the work of the imagination, as Yeats said, and how far you should push a thing. A lot of the poems I have a fondness for came smartly through. On the other hand, the poems in North from 1975 were grimly executed, and I really like them because they are odd and hard and contrary. When you are starting out as a young poet, you love the high of finishing, so you do the lyric quickly and that's a joy. As you go on, the joy of actually doing it, of beating the gold out further, of making more of it, of wondering can I take it further, is what you ideally want. But then the doubt comes in. Am I killing it? Am I deadening it? Coleridge said, poetry like schoolboys by too frequent and severe correction may be cowed into dullness. But, Heaney says, there are poems that ask to have more poems attached to them and to grow. 
Another question to which there are different attitudes is whether imperfection hasn't got its imperatives also, or whether you should make the poem as trim and as perfect as possible. I remember the poet Craig Rain saying, a poem should be as tightly shut as an oyster. Well, Heaney says in response, D.H. Lawrence might have said that it should be as loose as a big hibiscus. And I know it's been said of new formalists that, um, is that it is that their poems are so technically proficient and technically perfect that there's not actually any thing, any real thing going on. There's nothing left to go on when all it is is a uh, technical achievement. Um, there's nothing there. There's no reason to read the poem because all it is is a technical achievement, and you have to wonder about a thing like that. Um, I had another remark here about that, but I've forgotten it. The next question, or a, pay, a question from a page further on, says, you mentioned earlier that the poem will come more quickly if there is a form. Would you be offended, he asks Heaney, to be called a formalist? And this is a wonderful long answer that Heaney gives about how he feels about uh, uh, traditional rhyme and meter, and it is worth giving in full here. Heaney says this, I wouldn't be offended, but I think it would be a mistake. Quote, formalist, to me, sounds like a kind of doctrinaire position. Oh, I remember the, the remark now. It's, remember that he, it's a remark that Heaney says about... What is the poet's name? I need to look it up now. Because um, I want to get it right. I can't find the name of the poet now. Um, anyhow, maybe it's good that I don't remember his name because Heaney is insulting him. But he is... Uh, I think he was saying something that the, that the poet in question uh, didn't have much battery life, I think was the remark. It was a very Heaney remark. Because after the technical stuff was recognized... There wasn't much oomph left to it after that. Um, I'm sure the name of the poet will come to me uh, once I've pressed stop on this recording. But does Heaney think that he is a formalist? He says, no, he thinks that would be a mistake. He says, I totally believe in form, but quite often when people use the term, they mean shape rather than form. There's the sonnet shape, fair enough but it's not just a matter of rhyming the eight lines and the other six. They happen to be set one on top of the other, like two boxes, but they're more like a torso and a pelvis. Heaney, the remark Heaney said was that this poet's poems were had low wattage. That's the Heaney remark that I love, low wattage. And he says, um, there has to be a little bit of muscle movement. It has to be alive in some sort of way. A moving poem doesn't just mean that it touches you. It means that it, the, poet self, the poem itself, has to move itself along as a going linguistic concern. Form is not like a pastry cutter. 
the dough has to move and discover its own shape. I love to feel that my own voice is on track. That can happen within a metrical shape, where you're stepping out to a set tune, or it can happen in a less regulated way within a free shape. The poem I began with as a writer, called Digging, was truer to my phonetic grunting from South Derry in the north of Ireland than to any kind of iambic correctness from the books. Every writer lives between the vernacular given, whether it be the vernacular given of Oxford or of the Caribbean, and, on the other hand, some received idiom from the tradition. And this, I think, is the really important thing that he is saying, that we live between those two things. And he says, Ted Hughes had a marvelous little parable about this. Imagine, he said, a flock of gazelles grazing. One gazelle flicks, it, flicks its tail, and all the gazelles flick their tails as if to say, we are eternal gazelle. Most writers, Ted Hughes says, have a first speech of that sort, a dialect of the tribe or the class or whatever. Suppose they are in a foreign city, and they hear a familiar accent. It's like a gazelle tail flicking. So then the other gazelle flicks and thinks, Ah, I'm home here. I'm strong here. For every writer, there's that first language, and then there's the lingua franca. Joseph Brodsky believed that we must keep to the lingua franca of the forms. But I, Heaney says, I am equally inclined to the gazelle speak of South Derry. The books of mine that came most intensely out of the first shock of the Troubles was North. The first section of the book of that book is gnarled and fossilized. The writing comes at great pressure, but it's not in any traditional cast. It has forms all right, but they are like clinkers inside a stove or like cinders. The second half of the book has a certain amount of iambic pentameter for opener, less intense stuff. So I would say that the place where I most intensely engaged with the troubles is least connected with traditional form. And you might say those were some of his greatest poems. The second wave of my writing was a lesson to myself and a reaction to the lecturing that I was doing. In the mid-70s, I had begun teaching again poets like Sir Thomas Wyatt and Andrew Marvell, whom I hadn't studied since I was an undergraduate. And I had been reading Yeats more intensely at that stage, middle Yeats especially. And in Wyatt, Marvell, and Yeats, I was very attracted to a plain style. My first impulse, and I see this immediately in Death of the Naturalist, my first impulse when writing had been to make the language, language as rich as possible, and to have a stained glass effect. But in my forties I wanted a plain, clear glass, and soon realized that if the first appeal of a poem isn't going to be in the texture of its language, then it must have some other means of taking hold, and traditional meter, and a syntax that runs over and plays against the lines can do the job. And now Heaney doesn't say this here, but I think that we've mentioned before in other episodes that where he best achieved this was in his book called Seeing Things, especially in the 48-poem sequence 
called Squarings. And if you remember from the episodes where I read from those poems, from that sequence, it's a sequence of 48 poems. Each poem has 12 lines, and I'm pretty sure that the poems, uh, each of those 12 lines is basically something like iambic pentameter. And it is extremely plain and unadorned language. And I find it uh, uh, quite illuminating that uh, that is where he reaches the plainness most clearly, that, that clear glass effect in seeing things. And he says perhaps where his language was, was most rich and most uh, of the vernacular that he learned from growing up was in North. Again, I've always thought North and seeing things are the peaks of Heaney, and he seems to have said as much as well. Um, a page further on, Dennis O'Driscoll says, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I like these, his answer here. What are your thoughts about accessibility and obscurity in poetry? And Heaney says, at the moment, certainly in younger British poets, on the example of somebody like Paul Muldoon, there is a genre of poetry which exults in its far-fetchedness and in which privacy of reference is not an anxiety. Oblique in a way that collapses the distinction between the elusive and the allusive, the internet quality of the information that is pulled into the poem is part of the poem's self-fashioning. So there is a dandyish show-off and standoff quality to some of that writing. There's a touch of the late metaphysical swanky fancy mode there. I am a slower reader myself and have to be convinced that there's a chance of a payload is there's a chance a payload is going to be delivered. And he says if I encounter difficult poems I listen, that's the only way I can read, for an indication of somebody who knows the score poetically, who's after something beyond all this fiddle. And uh, I, perhaps the only time that I can think of, uh, Ezra Pound says it better than Heaney. He says somewhere about Finnegan's Wake um, that nothing other than divine vision or a cure for the clap would be worth going through the, the language that Joyce created uh, in Finnegan's Wake. And at this point in my life, I sort of uh, have to uh, agree with him there. And I was happy to see how quickly and decisively Heaney was able to uh, make that response. Um, because a great deal of this podcast has been about how Homer takes out the garbage, how a poet lives. I thought it was nice that uh, O'Driscoll asks Heaney a question about that. Um, let me see. Where Heaney said in an interview from 1977, the trouble is how to be sure that you are living properly. And Dennis O'Driscoll asks him just to expand on that. And Seamus Heaney says this, the essential for doing a poem is either entrancement or focus, which equals enjoyment. I guess both of those things, either entrancement or focus, 
should equal enjoyment. When you are truly absorbed, everything else is forgotten. You aren't asking, how well am I behaving, or whatever. What is important for the doer is the quality of attention, the, quote, habits of meditation, which Wordsworth spoke about. And in Wordsworth's preface, preface to the lyrical ballads, which Heaney says is a document still full of wisdom about how the thing works, Wordsworth says this, I believe that my habits of meditation, my, I assume he means my daily habits of living, of getting by, my daily habits of meditation, have so formed my feelings as that my description of such objects as strongly excite those feelings will be found to carry along with them a purpose. I'll read that again, because it is a little, uh, it is a little words worthy. <laughs> uh, I believe that my habits of meditation have so formed my feelings as that my descriptions of such objects as strongly excite those feelings will be found to carry along with them a purpose, by which I think he basically just means the way I live my life informs the way I write about the things that I have seen and felt, and uh, they, are, they determine one another, they are dependent upon one another. And Heaney says, that would be my feeling as well, agonizing over those things, how to live properly, I mean, is worthwhile because it forms your habits of meditation, your frame of mind, your disposition, your temperament. And I'll read Heaney's sentence again, too. This is, I was sort of disappointed when I saw what Heaney had to say here, because it is a bit muddled, it is a bit opaque, but then so is the question, how to live, what to do, as Wallace Stevens says. Um, but we should be able to listen to the muddle and make our own sense of it, our own habit of meditation. Heaney says, that would be my feeling agonizing over those things, how to live properly, I mean, is worthwhile because it forms your habit, habits of meditation, your frame of mind, your disposition, your temperament. So that for Heaney, the experience of growing up in the north of Ireland, of going to Queen's University, of, of meeting his wife, of spending his early years as a young father, as a early as a young lecturer of meeting with the young poets he was at the time and of later uh, moving to the cottage outside of Dublin, of working in the radio, of not teaching for a while, of trying to make a go of it as a working writer, um, and then of switching track again and of accepting that position at Harvard and of being in the United States for many months throughout the year and then returning to Ireland. All of those things, all of those decisions, all of those decisions that he made as a married man, as a husband and as a father. The remark of uh, Robert Lowell once saying uh, almost as surprise or with admiration you sure seem to spend a lot of time with your children. Um, all of these things uh, led into Heaney's habits of meditation, 
and they all allowed him to write the poems that he did, which might seem like an obvious thing to say, the way you live allows you to write the poems that you have written. But uh, it's worth seeing what kind of a narrative there is in there and imagining what ours might be as well. Two more small things here. One is when O'Driscoll asks Heaney about uh, something that just came up uh, in the past episodes from Notes from the Grid. He says, all of this talk inevitably brings to mind the Nazi commandants listening to Mozart at night and gassing Jews by day. How can we still claim, he asks Seamus Heaney, that art has a moral force? And Seamus Heaney says this, it is possible for the poet to be better than himself in the poem he writes. Um, I certainly feel that way when I lose my temper uh, during the day or just become impatient with my daughter. Um, it is possible for the poet to be better than himself in the poem he writes. I remember hearing uh, a story uh, from a poet, or I think a novelist, who was having a fight with his wife. And his, his wife says, you spend all this time, hours and hours, days and days, years and years, perfecting the language of your stories, of your writing, um, of being so careful with language. And yet when we fight, you just let fling with every dumb thing that comes into your head. How is that possible? Well, I think that uh, Heaney uh, has the answer here, and I, I couldn't agree with it more. It is possible for the poet to be better than himself in the poem he writes. Uh, that is one of the functions of doing, that is one of the functions of the doing of any art, and one of the benefits of putting yourself into the contemplative and receptive and transporting presence of art. It makes you a bit better than yourself for the moment. It doesn't mean that you won't relapse or fail yourself. There we are. And this last bit, it actually comes from the next chapter, but it is worth ending on here. Um, and it mentions Ted Hughes again. Uh, Dennis O'Driscoll says, uh, Richard Murphy, in his memoir, recounts the advice of Ted Hughes that he should begin writing poetry early in the morning, quote, while the door to the dream world was not yet closed by the day's activity. Did you receive similar advice, he asks, because Heaney and Hughes were such close friends. And uh, Seamus Heaney says this, I did not, though I've come to behave as if I had. For the past few years, I have been able to grope from the bed to the desk without intervening worries about preparing for classes or reading manuscripts to be ready for scheduled interviews with students during the day or grading student papers or writing recommendations, or whatever. Ted was undoubtedly right about early morning being the time when the gates are still unbarred. Occasionally, I waken during the night with the start of a poem in my head and have learned to scribble down whatever phrase or image is being broadcast from the bunker. Those messages are usually trustworthy, and you should act on them as soon as possible.
not only write down the encrypted code, but get up and get started on the actual decoding. The middle of the night is one of the best times. Because I don't have to rise to go to work, I can pad about at four in the morning, knowing that, if need be, I can sleep late. At times like that, in fact, I'm more than happy to be a bundle of accident and incoherence at breakfast, because the intended complete thing has happened in the small hours. Now, as the father of a five-year-old, I have to beg to differ simply because of my circumstances. I have always written better at night, although uh, being at home with my daughter for the first five years, I learned to write during her naps. And when she started going to preschool, I learned to write uh, between 9 and 12 or 9 and 2. And uh, you just sort of learn how to do that because you realize that's the best time that you'll have. But I have to admit that the best time for poetry, and for a long time too, um, the best time would be on a Saturday because that was the time that I was taking for a few years of being able to leave the house and go to Panera for five hours and just write. Um, but I have to admit that if all things being equal, and if I'm not looking for that time, if I'm not saying these will be the only hours that I have, so I better use them, um, the nighttime is still the best, not just for writing fiction, but for writing poetry. And there is still the feeling, uh, there is still, Heaney mentions the early, uh, the of trying to recapture the feeling that he had when he first started writing poems seriously. For me, uh, the, the, the earliest experience of taking writing seriously was in high school, and that naturally meant that I wrote at night, late at night, and stayed up as late as I could. And that is still the feeling. Um, if it is summer and the windows are open and the crickets are outside, that seems to be the best time still to write. The other thing that Heaney has to say is that, and that I've learned to try to accept as well, although it's very hard, because again, how does Homer take out the garbage, is that if you get a great bit of writing done early in the morning, or if you've planned to do some writing in the morning and suddenly find an hour or so to get it done the night before, on the one hand, yes, there is great relief. That is a weight that I don't have to carry today, even if it is a fun and enjoyable and illuminating weight. But then the question becomes, uh, it's seven in the morning, I've done what I needed to do with poetry for the day, what the hell am I going to do for the rest of the day? And that seems to be the puzzle to solve as well. Um, so that is Heaney talking some more about creativity, and we are very lucky that we have so much of him doing so. And coming up next will be James Joyce's wonderful short story, Araby.
Now the name of that song is Black Nights. That was composed by Gabriel Yared for the score to the movie The English Patient. And I associate that music with James Joyce for many reasons. In the summer of 1996, I went to a writer's camp for uh, high school students at Bowling Green State University. And one night, or one, one morning, we were told by the teacher that we were about to hear a reading of the most perfect story written in the English language. And that story was Araby by James Joyce. And I'm sure that whatever recording we heard that day is much better than the one that will follow this introduction. But I never forgot that, that's, that you could say that it was the best, not the best story, but the best sounding story. I wondered what that was all about. And by that fall, that was over the summer, and by that fall, my friends and I had gone to see Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, and we had gone to the mall to get, uh, as a result of that, had gone to the mall to get one of those huge leather-bound but completely unreadable complete editions of Shakespeare. But one of the other books I got that day, along with the Shakespeare, was one of those omnibus editions that Barnes & Noble, or I think this was a B. Dalton at the time, used to sell of uh, Dubliners and a portrait of the artist as a young man. I never forgot the name James Joyce, even when I quite forgot what it was that I had heard about him. And suddenly I saw this book. And for Christmas that year, I got a copy of Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake. I'm a senior in high school and wasn't quite, uh, I didn't quite understand uh, what it was that I was asking for. And it took a few months, but I finally got down to reading them. And by that time, uh, uh, Gabriel Yared's score for The English Patient had won an Oscar, and uh, I had gone to see the movie, um, of course I can't remember the director's name, of Michael Andache's novel, The English Patient, and uh, I actually recorded part of the novel in a very, very early episode of this, uh, of this podcast, and I'll put a link to it in the post description. The English Patient is something else that keeps cropping up wherever I go. And it was especially important to me uh, that last year of high school. And so uh, I had Gabriel Yared's score, and I would put on that song, Black Nights, and I believe another song called Ask Your Saint Who He's Killed, I think it is, or Saved. I can't remember the name of that title either. But I would bring my portable CD player with me to the high school library when I had study hall. And I would do the manual thing that you had to do back then. Uh, press program, press track 11, program, track 18, whatever it was, program, and then just set it to repeat. And there were a handful of instrumental songs on that score that even now I listen to them and I think of Joyce's Dublin and Black Knights is definitely one of them. This was also one of the first movie scores that I ever got. And for anyone who's listened to, I think I've mentioned it a few times, my affection for movie scores, 
um, even more than buying a handful of Beethoven symphonies when I was in high school. Movie scores helped get me into uh, classical and instrumental music. And these stories have just always been with me. And thinking about Araby, I see that it, al it also taught me and reinforced within me many of the notions that I had about love, uh, many of the notions that I came to again talking about Walt Whitman last year, that love and romance, especially to a young man, especially to a young Catholic, is more about looking and longing and gazing. And uh, it's interesting and quite remarkable to see just how much of that appears in the six short pages of Araby. All of that is there, including the very end, of course, where he realizes, uh, where the narrator realizes that his youthful affections, um, if aren't quite silly, they are a bit useless. Um, there is the epiphany at the end where the young boy hears the talk of older kids, you might say, high school kids, and realizes he is not a part of that crowd, the crowd that perhaps his, uh, his the girl that he has a crush on might be. Um, it is all in his head as he realizes. And I associate all of that with this little book from B. Dalton or Barnes & Noble. I associate all of it with Black Knights and the music of the English Patient. The English Patient being, of course, a great uh, love story. And I associate it also with my earliest perception, my earliest knowledge of writing, I suppose, of seriously taking up writing. And these short stories, the idea that this famous writer only wrote these 12 short stories, and then he moved on to write this stranger book, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, and then went on to write this even longer novel, Ulysses, and then went on to write, to spend almost 20 years writing something that few people couldn't quite read, which is Finnegan's Wake. Um, it was my earliest introduction to a kind of career like that. My earliest version of the lives of writers was Stephen King, and I think he even says it in one of the afterwords to his books. Um, the afterwords that I cherished because it is a writer talking directly to the reader about what he's doing. And he even says at one point, um, I suppose I could have been a quote, important writer and only published things uh, every decade or so. But that seems to have been exactly what uh, Joyce was on about. And all of that is mixed up. And it is also mixed up in the fact, I realize, that I am starting to write short stories again myself. And that one of the reasons that I've been drawn to read Araby here tonight is to take another look at the first short stories that really caught my eye, that really caught my ear, that really caught my heart and my growing imagination, my growing knowledge of literary history and that these aren't just stories, but they are people who wrote them and they have biographies. And um, I'm looking at the back of, of the omnibus edition at an old James Joyce looking like 
a stick figure wearing a suit, uh, reading a book with a magnifying glass. That was my image of James Joyce for so very long. All of this is very affectionate memories to bring up all of a sudden. But with that, I will get to Araby right now. Araby by James Joyce North Richmond Street, being blind, was a quiet street except at the hour when the Christian Brothers' School set the boys free. An uninhabited house of two stories stood at the blind end, detached from its neighbors in a square ground. The other houses of the street, conscious of decent lives within them, gazed at one another with brown, imperturbable faces. The former tenant of our house, a priest, had died in the back drawing room. Air, musty from having been long enclosed, hung in all the rooms, and the waste room behind the kitchen was littered with old, useless papers. Among these I found a few paper-covered books, the pages of which were curled and damp, The Abbot by Walter Scott, The Devout Communicant, and The Memoirs of Vidocq. I liked the last because its leaves were yellow. The wild garden behind the house contained a central apple tree and a few straggling bushes, under one of which I found the late tenant's rusty bicycle pump. He had been a very charitable priest. In his will he had left all his money to institutions and the furniture of his house to his sister. When the short days of winter came, dusk fell before we had well eaten our dinners. When we met in the street, the houses had grown somber. The space of sky above us was the color of ever-changing violet, and towards it the lamps of the street lifted their feeble lanterns. The cold air stung us, and we played till our bodies glowed. Our shouts echoed in the silent street. The career of our play brought us through the dark, muddy lanes behind the houses where we ran the gauntlet of the rough tribes from the cottages to the back doors of the dark, dripping gardens, where odors arose from the ash pits, to the dark, odorous stables, where a coachman smoothed and combed the horse or shook music from the buckled harness. When we returned to the street light from the kitchen windows had filled the areas. If my uncle was seen turning the corner, we hid in the shadow until we had seen him safely housed, or if Mangan's sister came out on the doorstep to call her brother in to his tea, we watched her from our shadow peer up and down the street. We waited to see whether she would remain or go in, and, 
If she remained, we left our shadow and walked up to Mankin's steps, resignedly. She was waiting for us, her figure defined by the light from the half-open door. Her brother always teased her before he obeyed, and I stood by the railings, looking at her. Her dress swung as she moved her body, and the soft rope of her hair tossed from side to side. Every morning I lay on the floor in the front parlor, watching her door. The blind was pulled down to within an inch of the sash, so that I could not be seen. When she came out on the doorstep, my heart leapt. I ran to the hall, seized my books, and followed her. I kept her brown figure always in my eye, and when we came near the point at which our ways diverged, I quickened my pace and passed her. This happened morning after morning. I had never spoken to her, except for a few casual words, and yet her name was like a summons to all my foolish blood. Her image accompanied me even in the places the most hostile to romance. On Saturday evenings, when my aunt went marketing, I had to go carry some of the parcels. We walked through the flaring streets, jostled by drunken men and bargaining women, amid the curses of laborers, the shrill litanies of shopboys, who stood on guard by the barrels of pig's cheeks, the nasal chanting of street singers, who sang a come all you about O'Donovan Rosa, or a ballad about the troubles in our native land. These noises converged in a single sensation of life for me. I imagined that I bore my chalice safely through a throng of foes. Her name sprang to my lips at moments in strange prayers and praises which I myself did not understand. My eyes were often full of tears, I could not tell why, and at times a flood from my heart seemed to pour itself out into my bosom. I thought little of the future. I did not know whether I would ever speak to her or not, or, if I spoke to her, how I could tell her of my confused adoration, and isn't that the word, my confused adoration, but my body was like a harp, and her words and gestures were like fingers running upon the wires. One evening I went into the dark, uh, into the back drawing room in which the priest had died. It was a dark, rainy evening, and there was no sound in the house. Through one of the broken panes I heard the rain impinge upon the earth, the fine, incessant needles of water playing in the sodden beds. Some distant lamp or lighted window gleamed below me. I was thankful that I could see so little. All my senses seemed to desire to veil themselves, and, feeling that I was about to slip from them, 
I pressed the palms of my hands together till they trembled, murmuring, Oh, love, oh, love, many times. At last she spoke to me. When she addressed the first words to me, I was so confused that I did not know what to answer. She asked me, was I going to Araby? I forget whether I answered yes or no. It would be a splendid bazaar, she said. She would love to go. And why can't you, I asked. While she spoke, she turned a silver bracelet round and round her wrist. She could not go, she said, because there would be a retreat that week in her convent. Her brother and two other boys were fighting for their caps, and I was alone at the railings. She held one of the spikes, bowing her head towards me. The light from the lamp opposite our door caught the white curve of her neck, lit up her hair that rested there, and, falling, lit up the hand upon the railing. It fell over one side of her dress and caught the white border of a petticoat, just visible as she stood at ease. It's well for you, she said. If I go, I said, I will bring you something. What innumerable follies laid waste my waking and sleeping thoughts after that evening. I wished to annihilate the tedious intervening days. I chafed against the work of school. At night in my bedroom and by day in the classroom, her image came between me and the page I strove to read. The syllables of the word Araby were called to me through the silence in which my soul luxuriated and cast an eastern enchantment over me. I asked for leave to go to the bazaar on Saturday night. My aunt was surprised and hoped it was not some Freemason affair. I answered few questions in class. I watched my master's face pass from amiability to sternness. He hoped I was not beginning to idle. I could not call my wandering thoughts together. I had hardly any patience with the serious work of life, which, now that it stood between me and my desire, seemed to me child's play, ugly, monotonous child's play. On Saturday morning, I reminded my uncle that I wished to go to the bazaar in the evening. He was fussing in the hall stand, looking for the hat brush, and answered me curtly, Yes, boy, I know. As he was in the hall, I could not go into the front parlor and lie at the window. I left the house in bad humor and walked slowly towards the school. The air was pitilessly raw, and already my heart misgave me. When I came home to dinner, my uncle had not yet been home. Still, it was early. I sat staring at the clock for some time, and when its ticking began to irritate me, I left the room. I mounted the staircase and gained the upper part of the house. The high, cold, empty, gloomy rooms liberated me, and I went from room to room singing. From the front window I saw my companions playing below in the street. 
their cries reached me weakened and indistinct, and, leaning my forehead against the cool glass, I looked over at the dark house where she lived. I may have stood there for an hour, seeing nothing but the brown-clad figure cast by my imagination, touched discreetly by the lamplight at the curved neck, at the hand upon the railings, and at the border below the dress. When I came downstairs again, I found Mrs. Mercer sitting at the fire. She was an old garrulous woman, a pawnbroker's widow, who collected used stamps for some pious purpose. I had to endure the gossip of the tea-table. The meal was prolonged beyond an hour, and still my uncle did not come. Mrs. Mercer stood up to go. She was sorry she couldn't wait any longer, but it was after eight o'clock, and she did not like to be out late, as the night air was bad for her. When she had gone, I began to walk up and down the room, clenching my fists. My aunt said, I'm afraid you may put off your bazaar for this night of our Lord. At nine o'clock, I heard my uncle's latchkey in the hall door. I heard him talking to himself and heard the hall stand rocking when it received the weight of his overcoat. I could interpret these signs. When he was midway through his dinner, I asked him to give me the money to go to the bazaar. He had forgotten. The people are in bed and after their first sleep now, he said. I did not smile. My aunt said to him energetically, Can't you give him the money and let him go? You've kept him late enough as it is. My uncle said he was very sorry he had forgotten. He said he believed in the old saying, All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. He asked me where I was going, and when I had told him a second time, he asked me did I know the Arab's farewell to his steed. When I left the kitchen, he was about to recite the opening lines of the piece to my aunt. I held a florin tightly in my hand as I strode down Buckingham Street toward the station. The sight of the streets thronged with buyers and glaring with gas recalled to me the purpose of my journey. I took my seat in the third-class carriage of a deserted train. After an intolerable delay, the train moved out of the station slowly. It crept onward among ruinous houses and over the twinkling river. At Westland Row Station, a crowd of people pressed to the carriage doors, but the porters moved them back, saying that it was a special train for the bazaar. I remained alone in the bare carriage. In a few minutes, the train drew up beside an improvised wooden platform. I passed out onto the road and saw by the lighted dial of a clock that it was ten minutes to ten. In front of me was a large building which displayed the magical name. I could not find any sixpenny entrance, and, fearing that the bazaar would be closed, I passed in quickly through the turnstile, handling a shilling, handing a shilling to a weary-looking man. I found myself in a big hall, girdled at half its height by a gallery,
Nearly all the stalls were closed, and the greater part of the hall was in darkness. I recognized a silence like that which pervades a church after a service. I walked into the center of the bazaar timidly. A few people were gathered about the hall, about the stalls which were still open. Before a curtain, over which the words Café Chantant were written in colored lamps, two men were counting money on a salver. I listened to the fall of the coins. Remembering with difficulty why I had come, I went over to one of the stalls and examined porcelain vases and flowered tea sets. At the door of the stall, a young lady was talking and laughing with two young gentlemen. I remarked their English accents and listened vaguely to their conversation. Oh, I never said such a thing. Oh, but you did. Oh, but I didn't. Didn't she say that? Yes, I heard her. Oh, there's a fib. Observing me, the young lady came over and asked me, did I wish to buy anything? The tone of her voice was not encouraging. She seemed to have spoken to me out of a sense of duty. I looked humbly at the great jars that stood like eastern guards at either side of the dark entrance to the stall and murmured, no, thank you. The young lady changed the position of one of the vases and went back to the two young men. They began to talk of the same subject. Once or twice, the young lady glanced at me over her shoulder. I lingered before her stall, though I knew my stay was useless to make my interest in her wares seem the more real. Then I turned away slowly and walked down the middle of the bazaar. I allowed the two pennies to fall against the sixpence in my pocket. I heard a voice call from one end of the gallery that the light was out. The upper part of the hall was now completely dark. Gazing up into the darkness, I saw myself as a creature driven and derided by vanity, and my eyes burned with anguish and anger. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.